You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our next episode of the Innovators Behind Disruption. My name is Raj Lala. I'm the CEO of Evolve ETFs. And I'm joined by Eric Balchunas who's a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg and also one of the co-hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Trillions. If you guys haven't listened to it in the past, it's a great overview of all the different events taking place in the global ETF industry. So, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So it's funny, we're doing this by phone, and uh, this is the first time I think I've done a conference call in months. Everything has all been video-based. I couldn't remember how to dial in, so it's uh, it's back to 2019 uh, to a degree. So it's kind of kind of different. Um, maybe Eric, what we could do is one of the purposes of this podcast uh, with having you on to talk a little bit about you know what's happened this year so far, kind of a mid-year update on the U.S. and the and the global ETF industry. Maybe we can start there and you can give everyone a quick overview. Yeah, I mean. This, this year, to me, uh, really one of, has been defined by the market breadth that we saw, which has gone away. But for five months of this year, it existed where value, small cap, and emerging markets and commodities and all the stuff that was just, I don't know, living in oblivion for about a decade finally woke up. And so what you had was this extra oomph in the ETF flows that we never saw. I mean, it's never been like this. Normally... ETFs over the years have gone to take, from taking in $1 billion a day to $2 billion a day. And then, okay, maybe like after Trump got elected and the market went wild, okay, $3 billion a day for like a month or two, and then it goes back to two. It was 4 to $5 billion a day for the first five months of this year. It's, uh, it was an unbelievable intensity. And the reason was because of those areas. Value ETFs took in like $56 billion. That's $20 billion more than their annual record. Commodities had already taken in their annual record by April. Small caps, uh, emerging markets, international. And yet you still had people buying the Qs and SPY and all that stuff. So it was kind of like a team where all of the players are, are working, even the bench players are scoring. Now, in the past six weeks, that's died down a little because those bench players have uh, struggled. And so you kind of have a little bit of a, a breather in, in the flows, but they've already broken the record. At, you know, I think they're 510 now billion, and so yeah. we're, and we're still in July. So, look, I, I I think the market is good for that extra billion or two, but there's a baseline of two billion that is just structural, and that's where we're at. Where where are you seeing the growth in terms of? segment if you were to kind of break it down into three areas. So, you know, institutional, retail advisor, and then the DIY uh, investors. Where's, where's, where's the most, is it, is it even, uh, evenly spread from a growth perspective? Or are you seeing, I mean, obviously we hear a lot about the rise of the DIY uh, and the yeah. meme stocks and so on and so forth. Are you seeing that segment contribution to the ETF industry improve or increase significantly? <laughs> Yes. And every issue we, we talk to acknowledges that the do-it-yourself retail lane is widening. And 
Now, some of that could be temporary because of the pandemic and people at home and the Robin Hood phenomenon. Um, the, 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 the thing is, though, like we, we actually use the volume of TQQ and SQQ. Q? Mm-hmm. Sorry, three Qs. Those are the triple leveraged Qs, bull and bear. Their volume is a proxy for how much retail is into this market. And it has come down a little bit um, because I think the people have gotten vaccinated and they're like outside more. <laughs> they're just not. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. retail, do it yourself, or the Robin Hood crowd, they really like juice. And so they tend to go for the leverage stuff, ARC, theme uh, ETFs. They're not really into like buy. I mean, that's too slow for them. So um, we have found that the leverage volume is an indicator of that. And also, when a product like, um, I don't know, I'm thinking of uh, what was the one that came out, um, BETS, B-E-T-Z, Digital Betting yeah. ETF, that could, yeah. the, the fact that that could come out and get hundreds of millions of dollars that quickly, you know no advisors are buying that. So that that's, there are signs like that we can tell that there's a retail lane that's opened up. And I like it. Sometimes the retail uh, lane actually is, is first, and then advisors start buying in, and then institutions. I think that's what we saw with ARC. ARC went from just pure retail to then advisors to now institutions. Um, and my colleague Tom has looked at the theme ETFs and how their institutional ownership has grown. But we know that retail was there first. So it's weird how the whole market has seemed to flip from retail following what institutions do to institutions following what retail do. But all that said, the heart of the ETF world is still the advisor. I think that probably estimates 70% of where the assets come from. But there is a shift there right. where they're buying models more, where the you know BlackRock just makes them a whole model of like you know, 15 of their ETFs and they tweak it, and that's what the advisor buys, as opposed to the advisor picking the ETFs individually. That that is a mm-hmm. that's also a growth area, but that's all within the advisor lane. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, in in Canada as well. I think you're, although we're not seeing here the institutional adoption of retail-driven products as much as you probably are uh, in the U.S. We're not seeing a lot of institutional adoption for thematics or even uh, disruptive technology or innovation. Uh, type of products, but yeah, it's, it's, but we're also usually lagging, uh, the trends that are taking place in the U.S. It'll be interesting to see, uh, what takes place here north of the border. What are, uh, some of the biggest trends in terms of, uh, adoption that you're seeing? I mean, you know, I often say like ESG gets so much press attention, uh, globally, obviously right now for, for, for good reason, because we're obviously all striving to net zero and, trying to create better balance in the companies and, and, and so on. Here in the retail world uh, for ESG, we're seeing virtually very little adoption. It's it's pretty much dominated by the institutional uh, world. Are you, is that similar in the U.S., or are you starting to see good retail flows, real real retail flows into ESG products? I think it's all way overhyped. Um, I think the yeah. media loves the topic of ESG. It's a way to, I don't know, virtue signal. They just love that thing. And so it gets a lot of attention, but the actual grassroots assets are pretty small. Uh, we, we calculated that 40% of the ESG ETF assets here are just based on 
one or two institutions and or BlackRock and their models. So there's literally, you know, two or three human beings that are institutional that control a lot of money that are that are really responsible for most of the flows or, or a good like a half. Um, so we look at the Vanguard ESG ETFs as a proxy for re, for retail a little bit, um, but and they've grown steadily, but nothing nothing crazy. This is a small area. If you look at it's one percent of all ETF assets. If you isolate just the grassroots retail, yet it gets forty percent of the press attention. So there's a definite real gap there. Um, I also think that like you know smart beta kind of died down, and so like if you're looking to sell active management in another form, now ESG is your way to do it. So I think this idea of repackaging active uh, is going to just, you're just going to keep going around to these different things, which is fine. I mean, you could argue that getting your active in a cheaper ETF structure, more tax efficient, rules-based is arguably a better way to be active, but certainly it's all active to us. ESG, theme, smart beta, true active, discretionary, we all put it in the same bucket. Um, and within that bucket, there's, I don't know, maybe about $100 billion in flows a year, and they have to split it up. Uh, the uh, 70% of the flows go to cheap, boring beta, which gets no press attention but takes in 70% of the money. So, um, you know, it, there is a definite dichotomy there between press attention and flows. But certainly right. the, the the sort of – arrow has landed on ESG right now is the hot area, but it just seems overblown to me. The other problem with ESG is the subjectivity. Like, if you look at this fund, yeah. some hold Green. Facebook and Exxon, some don't. Um, <laughs> some hold, don't hold things you think they should. Like, uh, for example, one of the most strict ESG funds doesn't hold things like Netflix and Berkshire. And you're like, what's wrong with those companies? And then I, you dig in, you realize, okay, you know, Warren Buffett has a couple of coal plants. His board isn't that independent. But who cares? It's Warren Buffett. Like that's a board where a logical person would be like, I can let that slide. Um, but so when you apply these scoring systems, these companies, a lot of babies get thrown out with the bathwater. So it's not just companies that show up in the fund that are suspect, like an Exxon or Facebook. It's the surprises yeah. that are left out too. Uh, so that level of subjectivity is also probably going to be a, a problem long term for that category. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, I, I'll tell you, we entered into the ESG space um, a few years ago, and we launched one of the first, the first, I guess, gender diversity uh, ETF, and we learned a lot of lessons uh, from it, which was that, you know, people, there's a lot more hype and a lot more talk around it rather than opening up of wallets. And we decided that, you know, for us, that we were not going to get back into the ETF space, or sorry, to the ESG space, until unless we had an idea that we thought would really resonate in the market. And to your point, you know, I mean, the biggest criticisms of ESG in general has been unclear screening processes and narrowing of the investable universe and ultimately changing of the overall return profile. So we launched these clean beta ETFs that basically take traditional indices like S&P 500 or in, in Canada's case, TSX 60, and then decarbonize it by uh, purchasing and retiring carbon credits to offset the carbon emissions of the companies. And it's been an interesting, we just launched it a couple of months ago. It's been an interesting um, uh, initiative so far. The institutions seem to be quite interested, but when we go and talk to retail, 
they're still not there here in Canada as it relates to ESG. I mean, they're still very much return-driven, and uh, they don't see the clear path to getting better returns versus doing the right thing uh, in their portfolios. But I think this time we could – I don't know if you feel the same way in the U.S., but I think this time we could potentially be at a tipping point, and the only reason I see that is – because of the wealth transfer that's taking place over the next, you know, 10, 15 years, where when you talk to younger investors, climate change is, is, is pretty relevant to them in their investment behavior and uh, not as relevant maybe to their parents, but ultimately they're going to inherit those portfolios and or start to have influence over those portfolios. And, you know, a few advisor conversations I've had uh, where advisors have said that they're starting to look a lot closer at ESG because of that influence from the younger generation on their current clients' uh, portfolios and, and activities. So I'm hopeful that we will start to see uh, greater adoption. I totally agree with you, though, that, uh, that they're, the, the methodologies that a lot of people are using are kind of head scratching and you wonder why some of the companies that are in their top 10 are even in uh, their top 10. But I think we've got a, a ways to go, but I'm hopeful that we're at a bit of a tipping point. I just don't know if that tipping point is going to take, you know, a year, two years or 10 years still uh, for it to actually take effect. The, the other thing that about that whole scene is, I suppose you're right. I, I think there's just such a blacktivism element to the whole thing because a, Oil powers all the companies in the S&P. I mean, you, you cannot rid of oil. At B, right. I was going to write this post. It was just too – it was too um, – I don't know. I, I, there's just no way I could get away with it. But I was going to write a, like a diary entry of, of somebody who was so happy they bought an ESG ETF because they're going to change the world. And then I was going to like show how like they got up, drove to work, so they, they bought Exxon to get gas. Then they um, ordered some stuff from Amazon, and then they came home and watched Netflix. All three of those companies are not in the fund they just bought. Um, and so a lot of the people who, like, think they want to be ESG are, like, the biggest consumers of the stuff that would be scored low. And I don't know what that is. Is that, like, trying to erase your guilt or show the world or just walk around and just be like, hey, I, I'm a good person? I, I don't know if that's enough to, to make something last. I Maybe. I mean, Whole Foods kind of did it selling organic avocados for like double the price or whatever, but I don't know. I just, me personally, yeah, I hear you. I, I, it's just, I don't know. I just, I think, some, I'm going to be honest. There's, just, there's, a, there's a real level of bullshit in it. Well, I think, I'm just you know, saying. when you look at, no, I, I agree with you, but I think, you know, when you look at ESG last year, right, the stat that I saw was I think 55% of proclaimed ESG funds outperformed the broad market, and this year, now this stat's a bit dated. I think I saw this about a month and a half ago. This year, uh, only 35% have outperformed. And part of the reason why we had outperformance last year is because a lot of these ESG funds were underweight energy and overweight uh, big tech. And this year, that has kind of hurt, maybe, maybe not in the last month or so, but it's hurt them a little bit. And you've seen flows come off at least here in Canada uh pretty significantly especially on the on the retail side if there is any flows to talk about but a lot of people were piling into clean energy funds 
late last year and into Q1 of this year, and you've just started to see that completely drop off. And the only conclusion I can come to is that ESG is important, but returns are always the most important. If you can get better returns yes. and also feel like you're doing something right, uh, then then you're all in. Uh, but the moment that returns get compromised in order to do something right, uh, you've got an issue. And I think that's what that's what we're seeing, at least north of the border, uh, taking place here. Yeah. So you you tap into a couple things, and I agree with you. And so there's no way to do ESG without having an underperformance period like we saw this year. So I think you get one of those and people get turned off. I mean, currency hedging was a craze and it underperformed. Nobody cares anymore. Like, um, low vol is going through it. I, I don't think people are going to come back to low vol for a long time. They got, they felt burned. So I think ESG is going to struggle with that as well. The other big issue, so we actually are bullish clean energy ETFs. Um, because of the changing portfolios, like if you take a portfolio these days, it seems like it's barbell where you've got 70% is in like cheap vanilla, uh, index products that are very boring. And then people go wild with the other 20, 30% and they want stuff that has nothing to do with the index. It's very different. That's why Bitcoin's popular and Kathy Wood and, and clean energy to, to us fits in that barbell portfolio better than an ESG fund that excludes a couple stocks because A, right. you will underperform, but people are going to have less of a stomach to underperform in the core. They're going to have more of a stomach for underperformance on the if it's only hot sauce and a small allocation, which is right. why we've always said Kathy Wood will not see the outflows you think even if there's a 35% drawdown because it's not like the 90s when your active fund was the core and if you had a drawdown, you were crapping your pants because that's your whole equity. Well, no, Vanguard's my core equity now or whatever, and this is just my hot sauce. And so then it brings up, well, if you're going to do ESG, you're going to replace a three basis point fund with ESG. Well, now you're toying with the core, and if you underperform there, I think you're going to be more frustrated than if the clean energy goes down um, in the middle. But the other thing is some people are like, well, I only use – I add 5% of the ESG fund. And I'm like, well – What's the point then? Because then are you saying the rest of your core equity still holds the S&P 500 and that still holds all the companies you just excluded? Like, I don't get that. I don't get it using it as a small overlay. Um, I think you have to replace your S&P 500 with this ESG fund. And that really raises the stakes on performance. Whereas if it's a clean energy fund on the side, I think you can live with a little more underperformance. And you can say, well, look, I'm exposed to all the stocks in my core. And then here, I'm going to give money to the people that are hustling to make the world a better place. I personally think that is makes more sense investment-wise than replacing your S&P 500 with like a exclusionary ESG fund, which will underperform at some point. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's move off ESG since you were just talking about how much media attention it gets. Let's uh, talk, talk a little bit about disruptive tech. You just touched on it. Uh, obviously disruptive tech, disruptive innovation, even thematic. Here in Canada, every, everyone's got a different label, but they ultimately funnel towards very similar type of products. Obviously it was a phenomenal year last year. Uh, and, uh, Kathy Wood was, uh, was definitely the spokesperson, uh, for the, for the entire industry. What are your thoughts in terms of what's happening? This year in the space, I mean, you know, as you know, we're, we're, we're pretty focused on disruptive tech. Uh, at Evolve and launched a lot of first and third kind ETFs uh, in the country, but performance has kind of fallen off a bit. 
in the last uh, in the last couple of months. And we were just talking about how performance begets flows, but I will touch on that later with you because I want to talk to you about uh, the the Crane Shares Fund and also Jets, which is negatively correlated to performance. But uh, what are your overall thoughts on uh, disruptive tech, disruptive innovation right now, and and the opportunities? Yeah, I, again, I, I think it's people are really interested in something that is very different than the S&P 500 uh, as hot sauce. And so disruptive tech as a theme is is that. And I think, you know, part of the reason some of those funds have been successful and ARC in particular is that people are like, look, um, you know, I've got all the whole market covered here. What I want is to just build the companies that are really changing the world. And if that means I pay like a high PE, I'm okay with it. And that kind of makes sense to me. And I can see how you could stomach underperformance if that's your attitude. Again, if you go disruptive tech as your core, um, that's, that, that will be problematic because it will underperform for stretches and you're going to get nervous and sell it. But I think as a hot sauce add-on, it really makes sense. So we're, we're bullish on the whole area. Um, and I think the way the portfolios are set up today, really perfect environment for disruptive tech ETFs to, to shine. Yeah, totally agree. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of areas of disruptive tech that you could argue actually offer up some value uh, at the moment. I think most people just assume that when they look at this area of the market, you know, the P ratios are, you know, like 80, 90 or north of 100. Uh, but that, that isn't always the case. There's definitely some value areas uh, of the market. And I totally agree with you as well. I mean, when people are thinking about the growth segment of their portfolio, uh it's a great area to be to be looking at but yeah it should should not be core uh for anyone uh, to be to be in, investing in uh going back to going back to one of the things i mentioned before really interesting uh um that's ha- what's happened i guess like through this pandemic jet uh uh frank holmes who i know uh pretty well and he actually had a canadian business uh, a Canadian ETF business as well, you know, launched Jets, I guess, maybe what, four years ago, four and a half years ago, got to like 30 million bucks. And then during the pandemic, when, uh, when airline stocks were getting hammered, uh, he got that fund up to a billion dollars pretty quickly. And then now we're seeing this with the crane shares China fund, uh, as well. How do you make sense of that? Just people thinking that they're picking the bottom and that's why they're moving in because you and I both know normally, like 99% of the time, your uh, your new assets are highly correlated to your performance. And this is like two examples, and maybe you know of a couple of others as well, uh, where the performance has been absolutely uh, terrible. But, uh, I mean, when they got the flows in, but for some reason uh, brought in a lot of assets. Yeah, you're right. It's really unusual. It's the exception, not the norm. In some of the weirder areas, like the oil futures ETF and leverage products, yeah. there is a lot of mean reversion buying, but I wouldn't include that. That's more of a local trading crowd thing. But for a theme ETF, really, these are shiny objects, and these are retail-driven. And, yeah, normally retail buys in when the line goes up in the chart. <laughs> it's just the way it is. And then when it goes down, they sell. Yeah. It's just like we've seen it happen. I can only tell you that this is part of what we talked about earlier. I think the do-it-yourself lane of retail – is growing, and I think the they are uh, a group of people who uh, are interested in buying the dip. 
Um, I think that's a trade that a lot of them have thought. And I think in Jess's case, which is probably one of the most fascinating stories uh, from two years, from the pandemic, there was this idea that also that like Fauci and all these people were overblowing it. And like, there's no way, you know, I, I'm going to, it was almost like a, uh, an expression of like, I'm optimistic on America more than these pessimists mm-hmm. telling me everything's going to shut down and all this. Remember Buffett sold airlines and they, people still started buying in and they were proven right. Jets had a great run. And, uh, so here's another case where, oh, this is beaten up. Let me, let me buy the dip, uh, for China internet. And there's not many dips to buy, frankly. So I think with the market like up everywhere, bonds, stocks, I, I, there's a, some, I, think it looks like an opportunity to a lot of people and B they've been rewarded for doing this time and time again. So I would think we might see more of this uh, over the years as well until there's one of these like real nasty prolonged, like, you know, 2000, 2001 type sell-offs where the market goes down like 50% over like two years, then it might change again. Um, But as long as the market feels the Fed has its back and, by the dip works. I, I think it's a new mentality. So I'm not totally surprised. That said, I thought there'd be like a, a few bail people bailing and then maybe they come like, but it was flows every day for, for K-Web uh, since yeah. China started imploding. It is unique. Um, so yeah, it just shows you that, that retail investors are, are, are thinking more of an actual trade than just, Oh, you know, line went up by, you know, and I think that's part of the whole democratization. That might not be the right word, but the access that retail now has to all to trade all day. But aren't there? I mean, I know Jets is pretty narrow, but aren't there a number of other alternatives in the U.S. to KWeb? Yeah, but KWeb was first, and KWeb it's a good ticker. So uh, they just got the, yeah. they got the. There's probably only room for one mega China internet ETF, whereas. Same with Jets. Probably only room for one airline ETF, where you could have like three or four tech ETFs. Travel and tourism. Uh, yeah, you could have a yeah. travel and tourism ETF. CQQ like is the other one. I think. Let me see what C, I think CQQQ isn't bad. I mean, this is Invesco's China Tech. This one has mm. uh, 1.5 billion. It's not a bad second wow. place. Yeah, this more than <laughs> I thought. By the way, that's another issue this year. I every time I look, there's these ETFs that like were like little babies, and I was like, oh, come out of nowhere, like in oblivion. And then bam, it's got like a billion or two or three, and I'm like, wow. Um, so we have this yeah. thing we call the middle class. And um, there's <laughs> uh, here, let me quiz you on this, Freddie. So there's 2,500 ETFs in the U.S. How yeah. many do you think are between 100 million and a billion? Now, over a billion is a pretty small list. So that's what we call blockbusters. So, but a hundred million yeah. is like, okay, you're a success. And a billion is like, you're a blockbuster. So there's this middle area. How many think fall in there out of 2,500? Out of 2,500. I'm going to, I'm going to reverse, I'm going to reverse it out. And I'm going to say that my guess would be that about 30% are under 100 and 5% would be over a billion, so that is gonna that's gonna leave me with about sixty. So I'm gonna say well sixty sixty five. I'm gonna I'm gonna down it a bit. And I'm gonna say sixty percent would be in that in that bucket. Wait, what'd you say? We're Might over a close. billion. 
But what'd you say? You said, okay, so I have 549 ETFs over a billion out of 2,500. Oh, wow. That's a lot. So that's, a so, lot, that's a, right? so, so that's 20 for 20%. So 20% yeah, would be over a billion. Yeah. yeah. And then the number between a billion and a hundred million is about a thousand. It wasn't that so, far. So I was, it's about 40%. Yeah. yeah. I said yeah. 60. So you were I right in the middle class. You, yeah. You, yeah. Under, you understated the upper class though. Which I, that's so you're sixty twenty you. so only twenty percent sorry you're forty twenty so forty percent based on your numbers there forty percent would be under a hundred million is what you're saying yeah right yeah if you're forty percent a hundred to a billion and twenty percent yeah wow that's that's quite a bit yeah about eleven quite a bit are under yeah that's um, a lot that's that interesting said, that said uh, of that uh, of that say one thousand that are under a hundred. Um, mm-hmm. Only, I'm going to go to 30 million, which is really like like test with them. Uh, only about four, four, well, 550 are under 30 million. So 550 would be zombie funds to a degree. If you go, if you go under 30, 30 to 100, 100 to a billion, and a billion and over, they're pretty even bars. Yeah. Put it that way. Whereas mm-hmm. it used to be much more barbelled. I'm shocked at how many. I'm still shocked at how many are over a billion. Twenty percent of too. the entire U.S. ETF industry is over yeah. a billion in assets. That's 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 uh, that's that's pretty. It's pretty great. It's you know, one is yeah, yeah. That's that's impressive. You know, one of the one of the things that look, we've been one of the biggest beneficiaries of it, and I I know a lot of U.S. companies have as well. Is beyond the disruptive tech. You know, when I was getting our business. Uh, uh, building my business plan for Evolve, most people said to me, you're nuts. Like, it's such a crowded space. How are you going to compete with the big boys? Don't even bother doing it. It's a low margin business. Go into something tech, something like that. And I was like, yeah, but you know, I, 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 I've been living in the finance industry and the product industry for a while. And I've always believed that if you come up with good ideas, uh, and execute a good business plan. You can have success no matter what industry uh, you're you're in. And thankfully, you know, for us because we're closing in on two billion in less than four years. Thankfully, it's 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 worked and it's worked great for a lot of companies. And yes, like I was looking at Global X, like holy cow, those guys have exploded uh, in in terms of growth. Because to me, this middle class is so great for innovation in the industry uh and uh and building better products because if you just left it to the big giants we 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 wouldn't be getting as specialized and as narrow and investors wouldn't have the kind of choices that they have today so i i love to i love the fact that that middle class is growing so much uh there i don't know what the stat would be for for canada but yeah it's great it's very healthy the middle class gives everyone hope um, and yeah. in the middle class, there's a lot of indie issuers. That 550 over a billion, you're going to have a predominantly big five there. Um, but the middle class is all over the place. And then there's, a, there's an arc once every five years or like a wisdom tree and DXJ. And that, mm-hmm. the idea of mega success also gives hope. And I think that that's why ETFs are kind of like the Silicon Valley of the investment world. I think there's plenty of hope. You can make it. 
It's hard to make it. It's a slower margin. Um, but it's a slower margin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, all right, we're going to run out of time. There's a couple of quick things I want to cover off with you. Uh, one is everyone's favorite topic besides ESG, Bitcoin. Uh, you know that we launched, uh, I don't know, you wrote about it. We were, uh, we were second Bitcoin ETF in the world by a day or second in North America by a day. Obviously that resulted in a pretty big difference in, in, in flows. And then we were tied for first on Ether, which I know made, uh, made a lot of, uh, commentary all over the world because they let three, uh, ETFs come out at the same time around Ether. What, uh, what do you think you're going to have in the U.S.? First of all, any predictions as to when you will have a uh, Bitcoin ETF? I know you're, I'm sure you're tired of getting asked that question. But my second question for you as an extension to that is when it does get approved by the OS, sorry, by the SEC, um, do you think that they do it on a first come first serve basis as in the guys that filed first? and get to launch first, or do you think they're going to let all of them launch at the same time, like they did for us, like the OSC did for us on Ether? Great question, and this is something we think about a lot. It's it's the story of the year. The problem is it it just keeps getting prolonged and prolonged. And so, um, look, my new thing is what I call the higher power theory. And I, I used to just look at the SEC as like, oh, well, they're going to approve a Bitcoin ETF because Canada did it, and we follow you guys like every – we have like six months six month delay on when you launch a new area, we follow. Um, I guess I think it's nice to see – like it's almost like you're a test case or an incubator up there. Um, so we thought, okay, six months, that puts it in the fall this year. But I kept thinking that the SEC was just thinking of retail and had its own power. My new theory is the SEC is in a holding pattern because of real higher-ups. People higher than Gensler, because I think you've got quotes from Yellen, Janet Yellen, Yellen, Treasury Secretary, yeah. who talks to Biden all the time about. I mean, there's damning comments on Bitcoin, and the I think the SEC needs regulatory framework and needs to serve that up to the higher ups before it can approve an ETF, as an ETF would be seen as, I don't know, endorsing Bitcoin by the government. So there's a bigger forces involved here than I anticipated. Uh, because I think if you look at, like, well, I care about retail investors, you, you'd have to approve the ETF because it's a great structure. You know it works. It's worked in every country. GBTC is, is not good. Here. Yeah. yeah. And here. Um, using a stock like MicroStrategy isn't, you know, that's how some other people are trying to get Bitcoin exposure. Or GBTC, which trades away from its NAV. Obviously, a Bitcoin – Hester Purse is a commissioner, and she's seen this for five years. Anybody can see it. Further, if you approve an ETF – in my opinion, that's the way to clean up the exchanges and add transparency and, and to the underlying because you bring in market makers who aren't going to mess around with shady characters. And so the, yep. it would really help, I think, clean up the whole underlying area. And I think they know that. I, that's why I think there's just – there's they got to feed the beast of the big higher-ups in the government who need some kind of underlying regulatory framework for Bitcoin. So I just don't think we're going to see one for a long time, unfortunately. Um, I could be wrong, but if they do approve one, I think you'll see three or four come out first. I don't think they'll approve all at once. I think they'll just want to test the market. I think they'll probably pick tried and true issuers like Vanek, Wisdom Tree. Um, Maybe they'll throw an indie in there that was early, but I don't 
think you'll see uh, like first come first serve or everything at once. I think they're going to pick specific people who they've worked with a lot and who have been through this rodeo many times in terms of launching an ETF. That's just my guess. And then I think they'll launch like yeah, that's, one, that's... two and a week later, five, I mean, what... a month after that, something like that. One of the differences between, and I'm sure you know this, the, the U.S. system versus the Canadian system is in Canada, you can file privately uh, with the OSC, which did take place uh, for a few of these Bitcoin ETFs. The challenge as an issuer uh, like us is you have no idea who's filed privately before you or after you uh, in the marketplace. So you have no idea whether you're winning the race potentially to come first to market or you're way behind uh, because that process. But in the U.S., you don't have that. And so it's very obvious who's filed first because it's filing in the public domain. And I find it would be really interesting if the regulators picked um, a a more uh, a, a bigger issuer to go first versus a smaller issuer. That that would potentially lead to a lot of complaints, I would imagine, for the smaller issuer because if the smaller issuer did file first, in my opinion, just because I'm a smaller issuer, in my opinion, uh, he who files first should be able to go first. But I guess it'll be interesting to see uh, what takes place there. Um, the uh what's your guess if if uh bitcoin uh etf got approved in the us today and they launch tomorrow what's your guess as to the first day volume that's a record for sure right uh, Has to. Yeah, yeah i was you know yeah. what happened in canada was so mind blowing uh there was yeah. so much volume um i yeah. did some translation and i figured out that if the volume you saw there were in dollar terms, if you take your industry times, you know, and map it in a blunt way, back of the envelope, um, you'd be looking at like as much volume as spy. Um, <laughs> it's just, I think it won't be that high. But I, I think, I think you'd probably have a Bitcoin ETF trading in the top five, uh, for the first couple of weeks, which would mean that would be like seven, eight billion a day. Um, I mean, there's yeah. so much money. That's why this is so interesting and why I've equated it to the movie Cannonball Run, where they see who can get from New York to L.A. the fastest, and whoever does gets a million dollars, and everybody tries different types of ways to get there. Somebody uses a Lamborghini. Some Someone uses, like, they dress yeah. up as priests. So some guy uses an ambulance. And uh, this reminds me of that. There's just all these, you know, people trying to get there because the prize is so big. Um, and everybody knows it. And unfortunately, that shouldn't. If they just approved it, like maybe three, four years ago, I don't think any of this would have been a big deal. They would have come on the market. Bitcoin wasn't as popular before that big run up uh, a year, you know, last, whatever, six months ago. I think they would have seen yeah. assets. But now it's like a big business thing, and they're going to be kingmakers. So whoever they pick is going to be, honestly, That's an right. instant millionaire based on that one product. That's right. That's why I. That's it's why crazy. I would argue against BNB not getting a fair shot. It'll be. It'll, it'll be yeah, interesting. I might do. Yeah, I heard. So you guys come. Yeah, you guys came in second, and that is a that's a major thing. I think. Um, although I will, I'm looking at your funds now. Your Bitcoin ETF is your best selling ETF this year still. So, in terms of just, yeah, right. if you just forget the other guy, it's it was yeah. a smart move, obviously. Uh, it's just, you got, oh, 100%, 100, 100%, 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%
Yeah, it, you're, no, but you're absolutely. I mean, we actually filed for the first Bitcoin ETF back in 2017, but I mean, the market just wasn't. You know, we didn't have the infrastructure back then that we do today. Like, there was no liquid futures market or anything like that. So it was totally different times. Um, but we thought maybe we had a shot at, at getting it uh, launched, and then we just started to feel like maybe the regulators were a little more receptive because of all the infrastructure and adoption that takes place, and that's why we uh, refiled uh, privately. But yeah, you're 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 absolutely right. What a difference a day makes. Uh, and hey, listen, you know the other firm purpose has got a bigger brand, and and uh, they have uh, they probably have a pretty uh, pretty significant marketing budget and things like that. So. It's 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 a little bit different, and I, I believe that that's the reason why they decided uh, to let all of the Ether funds go at the same time uh, out of some element of fairness, although maybe if people filed privately, they wouldn't be happy about the fact that uh, everyone got let out of the gates at the same time. But uh, it's, it's definitely been a very interesting uh, experience. I think that if when you guys get uh, an ETF, I personally think that your first day volume would be over twenty billion. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't yeah, say over a couple of weeks, so just because. Yeah, I think you'd be in the ballpark. Yeah, the because I think that three at once. But if you added them together, I yeah, agree. I think it'd be about still twenty. Yeah. yeah, or yeah, I, I think I think because you know Canada, obviously, we're a much smaller market, and then typically there's a twenty to one rule between ETF size yeah. in, in the U.S. versus Canada. So if I just apply the twenty uh, to the first day of what uh, what we had here, uh, you're you're pretty close to twenty billion, and you've also got much bigger global footprint. So you'll end up getting a lot of interest from other parts of the world uh, trying to buy into that ETF. I mean, one of the challenges that we always have here in Canada is the fact that you know it's so easy for Canadians to buy U.S. listed ETFs but virtually impossible for uh, Americans to buy Canadian-listed ETFs. And that creates a lot of challenges for us. I'll give you a great example. We launched uh, we launched the first e-gaming ETF in Canada uh, just over two years ago, and we came up with, I think, my favorite ticker that we've got, which is Hero. And then three months later, uh, Global X launched the exact same fund, Almost very very similar index with the exact same ticker, and so they've got nothing to lose by launching with the same ticker as us. We have everything to lose by an American ETF having the same ticker because sometimes people will just enter in the ticker hero, they'll see the word e-gaming and not pay much attention and go and buy uh, the fund. So it's it, it's kind of frustrating for us as Canadians to uh, to have such easy access. The good news is for investors and for advisors. Uh, you know, you said you've got 2,500 ETFs in, in the U.S. We've got over a thousand here in Canada. So they've got over 3,500 ETFs to, to choose from, uh, which means, uh, they got a lot of options. So it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. But I think because of the U.S. global footprint, I think it's, I think it's gotta be 20 billion. I'd be shocked if, if it was much lower than that in the first day for a Bitcoin ETF. I guess we'll, I guess we will find out. Uh, at some point, whether it's a month or a year from now, or hopefully not much longer, I close off with. Go ahead. Well, the longer they wait, the less a billion dollars worth. So it could be it could be trading 
a hundred billion <laughs> yeah. by the time it launches. Anyway, yeah, yeah, it'll yeah, be a big true. number regardless. So you want to close off with I know one of your favorite topics based on uh, all the episodes of Trillions that uh, that I've listened to. Favorite tickers? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, obviously I've said many times my favorite ticker is probably hack. Um, yeah, I love tickers that are verbs. Um, I, and, and it's also a noun. It's a perfect ticker for cybersecurity. Um, you've got some good ones here. I'm, I'm looking at yours. You've got data, hero. What's base? Yeah. Uh, base metals. Um, what's call? Let's see. Inhale call. Is that call? Covered options? U.S. banks. Covered yep. calls. Yeah. And cars. You got cars. That's pretty mm-hmm. good. You know, I'm looking at your lineup, mm-hmm. by the way. You have 38 ETFs. And you've got 30, 38 classes, 19 ETFs, but m- multiple classes. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, whatever. 30 right. classes with all but five taking in money. So you didn't yeah. crush it with EBIT, um, but you've got a lot. That's a good sign. That's like breadth. It's not just like one product. We find in the U.S., a lot, a lot of times issuers have like three products that like run the show and the rest fail. Um, yeah. Although, but this is hot. That's a high percentage of inflows per ticker. Um, although what's the yeah, and it's been interesting. It's HISA is getting that's a high interest savings account fund. Yeah, would you lose a big investor there, like an institution? Yeah, that's right. It was uh, it was a couple of big retail uh, investors, but that's just a cash fund. Uh, It's just it's it's there for it's there for transient money, anyways, for when people you know want to hold cash and then they decide to deploy it. It's just like it's like a money market fund, uh, basically. But yeah, you're 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 quite right. It's you know, it, cars is cars is a really interesting one for us because for the first three years, like if you take a look at that asset chart, for the first three years, it basically went from zero to ten million dollars. Most people would shut their fund down uh, because it would be like a zombie fund. And then starting kind of like late Q4, mid Q4 of last year, and then the next like three four months, uh, just started to bring in the assets, and that's been a that's been a great. I mean, it's actually the first automotive innovation ETF launched in the world uh, when we launched it about four years ago. So that's been a, that's been a great product. I, I, of course I'm, I'm biased with our, with our tickers. Actually my favorite ticker of ours is zero, as I said before, because I just think it's so great as it relates to e-gaming because everyone's goal is to be the hero in the game. Um, but I like, you know what I also like, I like Moo, although I don't hear anything about it uh, anymore. I think it was an agriculture ETF. I'm assuming it still exists. Yeah, that that's probably the Mona Lisa of ETF tickers. I mean, that is the <laughs> masterpiece. That said, I, I just I think Hack is a little tighter, a little more fun, a little edgier, a little more modern. Yeah, I like Hack. I would almost yeah. say Moo is. It, yeah, I, so it's it's real close. I mean, but uh, Moo is um, Moo has it all. It does. It's has it been successful though? I haven't looked at it recently. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a very niche product, so it kind of goes with the performance. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, what's it got? Like, I'm going to guess, yeah, 1.1 billion, but it probably had three or four. Um, it, it just has fallen out of performance-wise. Um, yeah, for sure. This thing tends to go with That's performance. That's great. But it's I, a, I agree with you on Hack. It's, it's a great picture. It's not going anywhere. Yeah, well, it's my favorite. Hack definitely is up there too. It's a, it's a it's a great ticker. We got fortunate when we launched our business that they had just introduced recently, like six months prior, four letter uh, tickers, and you can make some great words out of four letters versus three. 
So, uh, so we were, our, our timing was pretty good to be able to, uh, get some of these, uh, tickers. I'm actually kind of surprised that I'm, uh, nobody used the ticker, uh, HODL for, uh, for, for Bitcoin. I, I, I was thinking that maybe we should have thought about that too, because that would have been a great ticker for well, anything. Well, somebody crypto. in Europe has, yeah, somebody in Europe has that ticker and they do use Did it I? for us. I think it's in Switzerland or Sweden ETF. It's 21 shares right. has that. But in the U.S., uh, a certain issuer has it reserved, but they haven't filed for a Bitcoin ETF yet. Possible they give it to somebody? I don't know, but I know who has it reserved. So that's why it hasn't been. Well, here you have to give it up after 90 days. You can't, uh, oh, here's two you years. can't reserve for more than 90 days. Oh, two years. Oh, here's two years here. Yeah. That's valuable real estate. I know. Um, well, that's an Eric. guy. This was. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say one guy had. Doge ticker reserve for two years, and the rule is you have to after two years you have to go in the market for 24 hours, and if no one takes it, you can re-reserve it for another two years. Uh, but Doge got taken in the 24 hours. <laughs> That's how crazy. That's it like, is. of course. That's like uh, the early days of the internet when people I were know. squatting on top yeah. of uh, uh, web domains, right? Um, yeah. And then eventually we ended up having policies where you had to use it or lose it, uh, and you had to prove that you need you had a functioning company uh, behind that uh, web domain. So yeah, it's interesting. I remember there was a company that uh, re- registered the domain Bell, as in Bell Canada here, which is our obviously our big uh, network. And um, there was a big battle in the courts because this tiny little company wanted to keep Bell.com. And uh, Bell Canada was uh, was was opposing it, and that's what kind of set the precedent for having to really start to use uh, incorporate a company and actually have functioning to use it. So tickers might be the next web domain. <laughs> Who knows? We'll see. Well, I think Eric, it was it, they could they they well, there's there's tons of there's tons of real estate value for it, right? So for sure. Um, thanks for your time today. This was great. And uh yeah, great job with trillions and all, all of the other all of the other reports that you have on Bloomberg uh here in Canada. We all watch and uh and read your stuff. So great work and uh thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. All right, great to be with you. Talk to you later. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated, be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.